Amen. Well, let's continue to lift high his name as we look into his word, as we look into the inspired scriptures, and as God speaks to us today, let's lift it high. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23 and 24. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will give you one. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. And while you're turning there, let me give you a quick recap. Last week we saw the giving of the law, chapters 20 through 23. And now what we are moving into, just to prep you for it, is somewhat of the covenant ratification. It's the, it's the giving of the covenant. And it's the sealing of the covenant. So let's get into it. Verse 20, follow along. Behold, I send a messenger, an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you up to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for his name, for my name, is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless you. He will bless your bread and water and I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. And the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the, the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, chapter 24. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. And all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, 
all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that as we come into this inerrant, inspired word that you have given us, that you would use it to cut through our hearts, expose in us our sin, lead us to the foot of the cross, and may we see Christ through whom the new covenant is made by his blood. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever known a parent who would do anything to make their child well? Well, a number of us have gotten to know Lazarus and his wife, Daniela, over the past number of months. Last August, I received an email from a friend of mine in D.C. saying that there was this family from the Dominican Republic, and their daughter, eight years old, has uh, cancer, and she is going to be treated at Johns Hopkins University and wondered if we could be a church home for them. And we have gotten to know them. It's been a pleasure. And one thing that I've learned as we've gotten to know them is how much they have sacrificed to make their daughter well. Within one week of hearing the news that their daughter has cancer, they left Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and came to the best hospital for this treatment, Johns Hopkins University, JHU Hospital, people can say amen to that they spent five hundred thousand dollars they have spent five hundred thousand dollars so far they have left behind a company uh, with a hundred employers Lazarus is a minister he took a uh, leave of absence indefinite they have taken their kids out of school They've moved now twice as it's time for radiation, and they found the best place to get radiation is a hospital in Boston. So they've moved again. This is a family that is, is doing whatever they have to do to make their daughter well. And they long for her to be well, for her to be finished. You know, I think a lot of us that are parents, we, we love our children in this way, and in, in some way, if, if this time comes, the cancer strikes, our love that we have for them is put into action, and it's, it's visible, it's seen, and everything in life goes on hold because we love our kids, and we want to make sure that they're well. I want to talk to you today about our Father in Heaven who has done everything it took to make us well. 
God who has pursued us, and finally in Christ, did exactly what it took to make us well. I want to talk to you today on the theme, it is finished. The work is finished. We have been made well by our Father in Christ. As we read this passage this morning, some of you who are familiar with the concept of a covenant may have noticed some covenantal language in this text. If you've been around the garden for any amount of time, especially if you took our biblical theology class some time ago, you should be fairly familiar with the concept of a covenant. The Bible is familiar with the concept of a covenant. The ancient world was very familiar with the concept of a covenant. Let me just give you a little context, a little backstory here. In the ancient world, covenants were very normal. Uh, a, a king, a great king, would make a covenant with a small king, or what would be co- then called a vassal king, and it would define their relationship. I'll give you an example. Let's say that there was a great king named Rick, all right, just to pull out a name, a good, good old ancient name there. King Rick, great king, and let's say King Steve uh, is having troubles in his kingdom, a little smaller kingdom. He's lost some victories. It looks like he's going to lose the land, all right? King Rick, great king, comes to King Steve and says, hey, I'll, I'll make a covenant with you. And now in the covenant, there would always be a, sort of a specific flow to it. There would be a, uh, a prolo- or preamble and a historic prologue, which would define the parties. So the parties would be defined, King Steve and King Rick are the two parties. There would be a historic prologue. So Rick might say something like, uh, I have come into your land, and I, I've, I've, I've saved you from the attack of the enemy to your west. Uh, this is our history together. This is, this is how you know that I care for you. They would go on with stipulations, which would be defined by the great king, King, what's his name? Rick. So he would say, all right, here are the stipulations. You, you're going to pay taxes to me. You're going to pay homage. You're going to speak well of me in, in front of your people. Uh, these are the, the stipulations of the covenant. And then it goes on into the documents clause. He would say, you're going to keep a copy of this covenant. And you're going to read it publicly once annually, let's say, to your people to remind them of the covenant that we have with King Rick. And then he would go on into blessings and curses. curses. So this is what would happen if you uh, maintain your end of the bargain. If you obey the covenant, you will be blessed. I will provide protection for your land. My army is your army. My hospitals are your hospitals. You can have all the benefits of my kingdom. But there would be a curses column. If you disobey the covenant, if you break the covenant, then you will lose the land, and King Steve will be paraded in front of his people, and his head would be lopped off. Now, after the blessings and the curses, they would kind of sort of seal the deal with a meal. Now, remember, in the ancient context, enemies, much like today, enemies don't share meals. Formerly, enemies did not share meals back then. And so the fact that they would have a meal would signify friendship. So we're coming into this, coming into this covenantal meal now. King Rick and King Steve, united together, 
as one in a covenant, eating together. Now, if you look at our text, we see a covenant, and we see that actually the flow of the, the traditional historic covenant. So look at your text in chapter 23, verses 20 through 30, or 33, we see, uh, uh, we see the stipulations. Actually, let me back up just a, just a hair. In chapter 20, verse 1, you might remember that there, right there is the preamble in the historic prologue. So God defines the parties, here's the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, and God himself, and he says, this is what I have done for you. Remember this, I have saved you from bondage. And then he gets into the, the stipulations. Verse 21, for example, he says there's going to be an angel, and you are to listen to everything this angel says. He says, do not rebel against the angel. Verse 24, he says, you are to have no other gods. I will be the only God for you. Verse 29, he says you're not to make a covenant with any other God or any other people. So this is a, this is a covenant that will only be made with God. He goes on then into blessings and curses. In verse 20, for example, uh, one of the blessings will be that God's covenantal presence will be with the people. So this, this angel is probably the angel that we see in Joshua, which is called the, their commander of the Lord's army, which is a clear reference to Christ. So I believe that what he's referring to is, is Christ. Christ will be with you. My presence, my covenantal presence will be with you as one of the blessings. Verse 23, we're looking at land. The, the, those that are currently inhabiting the land, who are the enemies of God, will be wiped out. Verse 27, it says they're going to run. There's going to be this, this host of hornets that's going to go before the host of God's people. And then in verse 31, we see that God is going to give them the entire promised land as a blessing. A little side note here, pop quiz. Those of you that know biblical history know that God had promised this land and even once they started getting into it with Joshua, if you know that story, from that point on, how long did it take for them to take the entire land? Anybody know? The answer, a very long time. It did not happen overnight. As a matter of fact, the entire land wasn't even theirs until finally King David came along. It took a very long time. Question, pop quiz, this is the quiz. Why is it? that it took so long for them to inherit the promised land. Why didn't God just give them the land overnight? Tony? What's that? Oh, he's testing them. All right. Paul? I think Paul's right. <laughs> Let's take a look. Paul cheated. He looked at the text. So, so well, let's start with verse 29. He says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I'll drive them out until you have increased and possessed the land. Do you see the grace of God even in that? So God is going to give them the land little by little because God knows if this small people group get the entire land at once, wild beasts will take over. The land will become desolate. So God, in his mercy, is moving at a slower pace 
then his people think God should move. And that's a sermon for another time. But let me just say this. God doesn't always move at the pace you want him to move. And you know why? Because God is for your good. We'll, we'll preach that one another time. So we see blessings and curses as part of this covenant. And then we see there in chapter 20, uh, 24, we see that there is this document that, that, is, that are publicly read in front of the people. The people all affirm it. We will do all that the Lord requires of us. The covenant is sealed with an I do. And then there in verse 11, the people first of all, are, are not killed by God, and it says they behold God, which is in and of itself phenomenal. And then it says they ate and they drank. Remember, enemies don't eat and drink together. Friends eat and drink together. This is the covenant meal. This is the making of friends, God and his people. Now, Let's just step back for a moment. Turn to your table of contents in your Bible. It should be right around page one. Take a look at the Old Testament table of contents. You see Genesis right there at the top on page one. We're in the book of Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy really flesh out the law and, and go deeper into the law of God. Uh, the book of Joshua right there is a book of uh, the people moving into the land now. But what we see in Joshua is that uh, there's, there's, there's often rebellion. So as the people are keeping the covenant, they are progressing into the land. As the people disobey God, what happens? They start to get pushed out. They start to lose. And actually, Joshua ends. They're finally in the, in the land, but after just a couple generations, they rebel against God, and they break the covenant. From that point on, really, we see the first Samuel, second Samuel, all the way through second Chronicles. This is the history books, and, and really what it is is a history of failure. It just shows leader after leader who fail. The good leaders are rare. Failing to, to obey the covenant. Failing to keep the covenant that's made right there. We see problems now. Covenants made with other gods losses of battles. Now the rest of the Old Testament, for the most part, the vast majority of it at least, is uh, a, a number of writings of prophets and others who are crying out against the rebellion of Israel. Who are warning this people, you are breaking the covenant of God. You're rebelling against Him. Prophets like Hosea, for instance, who comes along in his own marriage and his own life becomes this model of what the people of Israel are doing. They're breaking the covenant. And Hosea is crying out, please return back to God or this is what's going to come. The consequences, the curses that are attached in the covenant. And then we go on to Jeremiah who's, who's called the weeping prophet. Why? It's because he preached for three years and begged the people to turn back to God and turn back to the covenant and they just continue to rebel. They're swept away into, into exile. Finally, the people, some of the people come back, such as Nehemiah, and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem after they have lost the land. 
But even still, rebellion continues. And by the time Jesus comes along the scene, Israel is filled with legalism. The Roman Empire is in control. The curses of the covenant are clear. Israel has failed. Now that's our problem. In the New Testament, Jesus then sits with his disciples in an upper room. They're eating a meal together. Jesus lifts up his cup of wine, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a new covenant. Really? A new covenant. A covenant that's going to be sealed with the blood of Christ himself. We are failures. And the Bible is largely, especially the Old Testament, a story of human failure before God. Old Testament means simply Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is an old agreement that God made with Israel that was contingent upon what? Israel's obedience. The blessing would be that they would inherit the land. The curses is that they would lose the land. And it was completely contingent. Their peace, their security, their well-being was contingent upon obeying the covenant, the terms of the covenant, which meant this, obey everything that I have said. All of the law. New Testament means new covenant. It's an agreement that is made by God himself, in which Christ comes and does all of the work for us. So what can we learn about this? Well, as, as we kind of take a glance at the covenants, this old covenant, which is called the, any, any guesses what this is often referred to as? What name do we attach to this covenant? Mo Moses' name, exactly, the Mosaic Covenant. As we glance at the Mosaic Covenant, as we glance at the New Covenant, what can we learn? A couple things we can take away. Number one, the Old Covenant demands obedience. The Old Covenant demands obedience. Do you guys remember the movie Karate Kid? Not the one with Jaden Smith, but the old one with Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. You like him? So, so Daniel is wanting to learn karate, right? It's the premise of the movie because Daniel wants to, wants to be a bully. It's true. Watch it again. He wants to, oh, is that what it is? He wants the girl is what it is. Anyway, regardless of the morals of the movie. And so Daniel wants to learn karate. Mr. Miyagi is the karate instructor. Daniel wants to learn karate on his own terms. Daniel's going to learn karate on Mr. Miyagi's terms, right? So he shows up at the appropriate time when Mr. Miyagi says to come, and he's met with uh, a wax, and he's going to wax Mr. Miyagi's car, wax on, wax off, in the appropriate way, not the way that Daniel wants to do it, but in the way that Mr. Miyagi wants him to do it. And he comes again at the appropriate time, gives him a paintbrush and paint. And he has to paint the fence in the right way, right? 
according to Mr. Miyagi's terms. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is this. Daniel approaches Mr. Miyagi on Mr. Miyagi's terms, not on Daniel's terms. See, a lot of times we want to approach God on our terms. What we see in the Old Covenant is that God approaches us and we approach God on God's terms, not on our terms. So, for instance, you might say, you know, I would give my life to God if God would fill in the blank. Stop right there. Wrong. We don't approach God on our terms. We approach God on God's terms. And God is a holy God. And God in this Old Covenant with his people says, this is how you are going to approach me. You are going to approach me as a holy people. You are going to approach me doing everything that I tell you, and you will not rebel at all. In verse 20, he says, don't rebel against the angel. He goes on, uh, uh, there's, there's an altar built, there's, there's pillars, he gives them the law, and the, and the law it's very clear, these are the expectations. Listen, in the, in the ancient world, it was common for a king to give a law to the people. And they might even believe in gods. But it was never the gods giving a law to the people, it was the king maybe consulting the gods. But the king ultimately was the authority. The king would give the people the law. Here with this new people of Israel, for the first time in human history, God gives the law directly to the people. This is what I expect. This is what it means to approach me. This is what it means to be my people. This is what it means to come into my presence. And it requires absolute obedience. Imagine you attended a wedding. Beautiful ceremony, beautiful bride and groom. And there the wife goes through the traditional vows. I take you to be my husband, etc., etc. And then the husband has a little surprise. When it comes to comes his turn, he pulls out, he wrote his own vows. All right. Everybody, the, the room grows a little tense. I take you to be my wife, he says. It starts off well. To have until to hold. Until I am tired of you. For better. As long as we're never poor. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. Until we are parted. By my decision. Right. I, I, I think I just heard a bunch of ladies say what? <laughs> No, he's going to come into this covenant on his wife's terms, not on his terms, you see? There's no contingency clause. God writes the vows. We approach God on God's terms. You might remember last week we looked at the law and we saw how all-encompassing the law was, all of life, your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, your work, your work ethic, your work relationships, kids in the room, 
honor your parents. It applies to all of us. It's all-encompassing. I just wonder right now what your neighbors might say about your own holiness. If you're married, I wonder what your spouse might say about your holiness. I wonder what aspect of your life you're hiding from God. I wonder uh, in, in, what, in what way are you seeking to come to God on your terms as opposed to God's terms. God, I will love you and serve you if fill in the blank. So the Old Covenant, listen, it, does, it, it uh, demands obedience. And therefore, second thing we learn is that the Old Covenant displays sin. It just takes our sin and it puts it on display. You know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. It's a day that we celebrate the work and the legacy of King and the civil rights movement during the civil rights movement. Uh, I've, I've read enough of the history, I've read enough of the stories, and I have enough relationship, relationships to know that a lot of white people in this country had their eyes opened to systemic racism and even racism in their own heart as, as a result of the civil rights movement, and we praise God for that. You see, when we are confronted with that which is better, when we're confronted, let's say, civil rights movement, with the plight of African Americans, and the racism, that is structured into human, uh, American society. It reveals the racism in our own hearts. Another way we could sort of illustrate this is if you were driving down a highway and there's no speed limits and everybody on this highway drives at dangerous uh, speed limits, 105, 110 miles an hour. Some of you would love that. And then one day, the, uh, the highway administration comes along and they put, they put speed limit signs out because there's just been too many accidents. Now, 105, when you pass a speed limit sign that says 65, that feels fast. When, when the law is shown, when, when, when what is right is, is displayed, it displays also what is wrong. It displays our sin. When we come into the into the law and we, we are confronted with the holiness of God. God is absolutely holy. It displays the sin that is in us. It puts on display our own brokenness. Look at verse 7 in chapter 24. It says, they say we will do all that the, that the Lord requires. We will obey every word of the Lord. Now let me ask you this, those of you that are Christians. Has there ever been a time where you've been struggling with a certain sin and then you, you say to yourself, I'm done. I quit. I'm not ever doing that again. And two days later, <laughs> we will do all that God requires. That is the heart's desire. That's, in the moment, I don't, I don't doubt that they really wanted that. The problem is that, that sin is not just some little attachment to us that we can kind of detach from, but we're sinners. We're completely affected by sin. Every cell of our being is affected by sin, and we're prone to sin. Here we're in chains to sin, and we continue to sin. And the law reveals sin. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 
the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I did not know sin if it was not for the law. He goes on, he says, I, I, I was alive without the law. And then the law came, and, it re, and, and, and sin sprang up, he says, and I died. What is Paul saying there? Is he saying that before the law was given that we were essentially holy? Is he saying that before he ever read God's law that he was actually a pretty good person and really did not sin? No, not at all. What he's saying is that the, the law revealed the sin that was in me that was lying dormant. I had no clue that I was a sinner until the law taught me that I had been coveting my entire life. Paul uses that as an example. It's not until we're confronted with that which is better that we realize how broken we actually are. You know, kids naturally get this. The kids in this room, I'll speak to you for just a moment. When I was a kid, I believed that I had to do good in order for God to love me. Kids are naturally, I'll use a word that the kids don't understand, they're naturally legalistic, which means that they naturally believe that they can work toward and earn God's favor. It's just the way we're wired. And so I believe that if I was a bad kid, that God wouldn't love me. Well, kids, good news. God loves bad kids. It's called grace. But see, as adults, as we get older, we start to, we start to lie to ourselves. And we find ways to tell ourselves that we're better than, than we actually are. But friends, as a church... It's a church with diversity, different backgrounds, different races, different economic classes. The one thing that we have all, or one thing I should say, that we all have in common is this. We all know that we're rebels. We come together every week because we stopped lying to ourselves a long time ago. And we know that we're rebels. We know that we need a Savior. The Old Covenant, it demands obedience, and the Old Covenant then displays our sin. Thirdly, the Old Covenant then, therefore I should say, demands a new covenant. If we are going to be right with God, if we are going to live in the promised land, if we're going to have the peace and security and protection of the Lord, the, the, the old covenant demands that there's something else, demands a new covenant. As a matter of fact, look at verse chapter 24, verse 6. We see that there's blood. We see that a, a, an altar is built at the center of their worship space, and an animal is put on there and, and cut open as a sacrifice to God, and then blood, half of it is sprinkled on the altar first to appease God because God must first be satisfied and then the the rest of the blood in verse 8 is sprinkled all over the people there's something even in this that is pointing to a better covenant that we're going to have 
built into the Old Covenant is a sacrificial system. Because God knew that they could not and would not obey the law, God built in a sacrificial system to appease for their guilt. The problem is day after day after day, these sacrifices would be all for offered and there would be no change. People would continue to sin and eventually they completely rebelled against God and were swept out of the land. How will God ever restore his people? It demands a new covenant. Imagine our, what was his name, Rick? King Rick? Imagine the great King Rick discovers that King Steve has broken the covenant. King Steve stopped paying taxes long ago. He, he's been speaking poorly about Rick. He forgot about their agreement. Now remember, the covenant, the curses of the covenant is that they would lose the land, Steve would lose the land, and he'd be paraded in front of his people and his head would be chopped off, Right? Imagine that King Rick discovers this. It's broken. It's obliterated. obliterated. The, the, the covenant is done. Infidelity in marriage. The covenant is now broken. What do we do? We can part or we can make a new covenant. And so now this time, King Rick, out of grace, makes a new covenant with King Steve. And he takes the curse upon himself, and he has his own head chopped off. So this is absolutely impossible. This can't happen in real life. But listen, what's impossible for man is possible with God. Humans, Israel, broke the old covenant. And there Jesus sat in the upper room. The, 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 the one man who was obedient to all of the law. The one man who upheld individually his end of the deal, completely faithful to God. The God-man himself, Jesus Christ, who is about to take on the curse of the law, to take on the death that is ours, that we deserve. He's sitting with his disciples, and he breaks bread. He says, this is my body, which has been broken for you. The curse that you deserve is being placed onto Christ. He takes the cup and he passes it and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Forgiveness of sins. Frederick Bickner talks about how God has always been pursuing his people. You know, when we see the new covenant, this isn't something new per se. It is new, but it's always been God's plan. God has always said, I will do whatever it takes to make my child well. Whatever it takes. Even in the old covenant, that was God's demeanor. That was God's position. He did not want to cut his people off. You know the, the story of Hosea? And in Hosea chapter 11, right there, God says this, How can I <coughs> hand you over, excuse me, O, o Israel, my heart recoils within me. I will not execute my fierce anger, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come to destroy. Even there in the Old Covenant, as Israel is rebelling against God, and God is threatening them through Hosea, and warning them, God says, I can't, because I love you. 
I will not cut you off. I cannot lose you. And God in Christ did whatever it took. The covenant was broken, and Jesus makes a new covenant with us. There he hangs on the cross. What does the Bible say about this new covenant? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12 says this, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. A new covenant, a new testament in which Christ comes and does all of the work. What are the stipulations, you ask? There are none. This is a covenant of grace. This is a covenant which God just simply offers his people. I'm doing it for you. What are the curses? There are none. Because this is a covenant of grace. And Christ has accomplished the work. There on the cross, he's hanging. And he utters those famous last words, it is finished. What is finished? The work. The work is done. The redemptive work of God. The pursuing of his people. The healing of his child. The new covenant is finished in Christ. Bickner says to respond to the old covenant is to seek righteousness. To respond to the new covenant is to be made new. You know, right there in Hebrews, we see two things about this new covenant. One, God is going to write his law on our hearts, on our minds, which means that our hearts will be renewed. Our minds will be renewed. We will have desires to obey Christ. We will be able to destroy sin in our life. We can pursue holiness. And then he goes on, secondly, he says, the sins that you've committed, your rebellion, I will remember it no more. I'll remember it no more. Has God given you a new mind? Has God given you a new heart? What, what sins are you remembering? What guilt are you clinging on to that God has forgotten? In what way are you seeking to earn God's love? Friends, we are invited into the new covenant. How do we enter into this? Is it through doing something? Is it through uh, following the law, obedience? No. The invitation is simply an invitation to come. Jesus said it himself. Come, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is finished. And in the center of our worship space is not an altar, but a table. The covenantal meal, the breaking of bread, the drinking of the cup. 
in which we remember the new covenant and in some mysterious way participate in it. Friendship with God. Meals are not for enemies, but for friends. And it is finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. It is a better covenant. We thank you, Lord, that you have always had this in mind. Your redemptive plan is beautiful. We thank you for including us in it, making this covenant with us through Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.